You know, my wife and I disagree about um, a lot of Christmas traditions around this time of year. Um, one of them being, I think my wife really takes to heart Christmas in July. Um, she loves to start Christmas early. Not necessarily July, but just kind of early. Um, as far as like the day after Halloween, like November 1st, she's like Christmas music, light. I don't know how it keeps getting bumped up, but she bumps it up, man. So November 1st is kind of like Christmas. I really disagree with this. I think it needs to be the day after Thanksgiving or December 1st is my true. I really think it should be de December 1st. Are you guys, who's with me of after Thanksgiving? <gasps> wow. Who's like, no, November 1st. Ugh. I only heard female screams on the November 1st. Um, that's my wife, actually. Um, but it's funny because we just disagree. I don't know. I'm like, I just want to get into the spirit after, like, let Thanksgiving have its day, you know, and then we can get into it. Uh, that's kind of how I view it, okay? So forgive me for that. But what I love about this time, and it's just fun, I, you know, I obviously go to coffee shops a lot, study a lot. Uh, if you go to Target, if you, wherever you go, you're hearing the Christmas music being played. And it's fascinating to me because, I mean, there are some deep, rich, theological statements in these songs. And a part of me will be walking through a store, hear a song. Did anyone else hear that? Like, this is just filled with the gospel. I mean, it's just filled with amazing biblical truth. You know, we like the pentatonics. My kids like the pentatonics. I don't know. They're like the ones who sing acapella and they make all the noises with their mouth. I don't know. But it's funny, like, even like kid movies, they're seeing things about Jesus' arrival and death and resurrection. I'm like, and I'm like, somehow I'm like, do we, do we get it? Do we see this? We can miss it so easily. One of the songs, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, Charles Wesley wrote, amazing. He, he says this, and this is really our focus today. It says in that song, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man, uh, with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Yo, we don't write like this anymore. So good. This idea that Jesus, our Emmanuel, the deity, clothed himself in humanity. God entered earth. God wrapped himself in flesh. The whole idea of incarnation Think, and I say this a lot, but think carne asada. Think meat. That's literally what it means. God wrapped himself. The incarnation is he's wrapped in meat. God took on flesh. I know you're hungry now. But um, I do love that idea. God wrapped in meat. God wrapped in flesh. Deity. Just wrapped in humanity. This is, this is Christmas. That God walked among us. That he did not leave us or forsake us. That we actually serve a God who said, I will come to you. Not just speak somewhere, but I'm going to actually enter my creation, enter the pain, and walk among you. It truly is unbelievable. I was at the grocery store yesterday, and uh, as I was checking out, got some ice, did an ice bath. That's fun. It's terrible. Um, but anyway, sorry, I don't know why I brought that part up. Uh, I, when we were, I was checking out, I saw this Life magazine, picture of Jesus. I never buy magazines. They probably know that they're going to get suckers like me around this time of year. But I saw this. It says, Jesus, who do you say that I am? Right? Now, here's the thing. Probably in their mind, they do this because Jesus sells, sadly. It's probably part of it. But I saw this. Like, let me grab this. Let me read through it a little bit. And who do you say that I am? And obviously, the take is always to introduce, like, the Gnostic Gospels. And it's to introduce other texts. And do we really know who Jesus is? And, but what I appreciate, at least, is like, all right, I wonder if this gets people thinking. Like, this idea of who, who do you say that he is? This is the most important question in life, is who is Jesus? Because everyone, I, and this is what's fascinating to me, every worldview has an opinion of Jesus. I mean, every religion has an opinion of Jesus. Some esteem him highly, just not the Son of God clothed in flesh. And so my hope is to like look at that question or to answer that question, who is Jesus? Who is he? What does Jesus say about him? What does his best friend, the disciple whom Jesus loved, say about him? 
And really the phrase I just cannot get away from, and I wanted to mention this, for us as a church, not that this matters too much, but this, for us, we've called this the year of the word. Just like, how do we just fall in love with the word again? How do we be people of the word? Colossians 3, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And we had Colossians down the hallway. Just when you walk in, just, we wanted our, we want our people just to be immersed in the word. And this idea, John just picks up on that. And he's like, Jesus, the word, the word that was with God, the word that is God, this word has become flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And I'm like, I can't get away from, like, this is Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. This is one of the strongest phrases I think used around the Christmas theme and idea. So here's our points today. I'm just going to break down that verse. Our points are the word, number one, then became flesh and dwelt among us, number two, and then and we beheld his glory, number three. All right, so let's look at the word. Can we read again? It's John 1.1. 1, 1. Why don't we just read verse 1, then verse 14. Make the connection again. John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We'll just go to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word, the word, the word. Three times right away, he says the word. I'm going to get to the idea of the word in just a second. But I love this. Um, the word, the word. There's something about someone's word that brings ultimate clarity to any maybe confusion. Meaning, um, I, I, you might ever meet someone and you're like, I wonder what they think about this topic. Or maybe you see them carrying something or doing something or holding something. And you're like, oh, I know their belief or stance on this. And I'll make it, I'll make it more fun. But uh, I, I don't know if, you know, I think about it. If you've ever seen someone like Karen Duncan, Right? And you're like, what are they doing? What's, what's wrong with them? That's, sorry, that's my thought. Um, but I'll see someone carrying up. Kidding, for all you Duncan lovers. I do think that. Um, but I'll see someone, and I, like, I ask them, like, hey, do you like Duncan? They're like, no, it's just close to my house. I'm like, oh, okay, good, good. Um, but sometimes to get clarity on something, right, you, you can't just assume because you see it. You see it. We, we assume so much. If you want to get clarity, you say, I want to hear from them themselves. Like, I want their, what is their word? What do they say about this? What's their take on this? The idea of the word is to bring ultimate clarity on something that might be unclear. Here's the idea. God's like, I want you to be really clear on who I am. And it's more than just spoken. It's the word became flesh. The idea of when I say number one, the word, the idea of Christmas is God, right? God came to us. Jesus is God. Jesus was with God the Father. Jesus is also God. The idea of the Trinity is introduced right away in John 1.1, that we worship one God who eternally exists. We have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And this idea of just God, let me tell you who I am. Let me walk among you. I think this is unbelievable, that right away John's like, we need to understand who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh, and God brought ultimate clarity, not through just words we hear, but the word was actually physical, and we could see this. This is why I think this is so important on so many different levels. You know, for those of you who remember, like, I don't know, maybe you took some sort of philosophy class, or maybe you took some sort of class on Greek or Roman history. There was a lot of idea of what is um, the logos, what's ultimate reality. This word, word, in the Greek that Paul, or that John uses, and I think uses very specifically, is this word logos. Some of you say logos. I don't know, but logos. This idea of this logos is so beautiful. John is a genius to me, how he writes. John's like, because he really wins, I think, the Jew or the Greek crowd, then speaks to the, to the Jewish crowd. But John starts off and goes, in the beginning was the logos. Now, there was this idea of what is the logos. So what does that mean? Really, the question amongst like Greek scholars was, what is ultimate reality? It, is there ultimately meaning behind everything? 
I, and there, there was a thought at the time originally, there has to be meaning behind it. Like, everything you and I see in life has a reason for it. It has meaning behind it. So for example, this is interesting. If we were to drop someone in, let's say from like, I don't know, some tribe that's never seen an airplane that's kind of like lost, is in the bush somewhere, maybe like in the Indian Ocean, I'm trying to think of the island, but like think of some tribe that's never been around like modern technology, you just drop them into your home. They're in your house. And everything they see is like, what is this? And what is the purpose? And this is so far, like, they'd have no idea. You think of like a coffee maker. They'd see a coffee maker and like, which is the right way up? And what do you put in it? And is this, is this a doorstop? Like, do you leave it against? Like, what do you do with this? Like, there, there's an idea, like, unless someone explains here is the meaning or here is the reason for this, and you take these like coffee grinds, I don't even know how to use a coffee maker, but the idea is like, if you take this and use it this way, this is the purpose of it. My, my point is, we have to ultimately find out, like, when you see something, you have to ask the person behind it, what is the reason for this, is, this thing's existence? What's the logos? Why does this thing exist? There has to be a reason. And the idea amongst them was, there has to be a reason for why we're here. There has to be ultimate reality. There has to be a logos. And originally, there was this thought of, what is the logos? And they believed there was a logos. Ultimately, over time, what began to happen was you kind of had two major philosophical groups and then kind of subgroups, but you had the Stoics, you had the Epicureans. Eventually, they said, you know what? There is no logos. There is no meaning. The only meaning is there is no meaning, which is not, does not work. But their idea was, okay, the Stoics said, listen, um, there is no ultimate meaning in reality in life, so what we need to do is just, we need to be noble and live like good, decent lives, which, how do you even define good and decent? But that's basically the Stoics' take, is there is no ultimate meaning, and just, just be good, just be a good person. Then you have the Epicureans who said, no, we agree with you, there is no ultimate meaning, there is no logos, but just do whatever you want then. Since there's no meaning, live it up, party, do whatever you want. Your flesh says do it, do it. And you kind of had two different kind of groups, and then you had subgroups from there. But the point was, like, you had this idea of the Logos being framed so much of their modern world, of the world they lived in. And John picks up on that and says, in the beginning was the Logos. Like, huh? In the beginning was ultimate reality, ultimate truth. The thing that you're wondering, like, why, why are we here? Why do we exist? Is there really truth? What is truth? What is the word? And the word Logos really just means logic, but is there logic to anything? And John is like, Yes. In the beginning, there was ultimate reality. There was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. And this Logos, this ultimate reality, became flesh and dwelt among us. And why that's so profound is, it's, truth is not just an idea or concepts. Make sure you believe the right things. Truth is a person. Truth is something you can hug. <laughs> someone you can hug. Truth is someone that came and walked among you. And what I love about John is John's like, your idea of truth is more of this must be some sort, if I believe the right things or I can understand it and I can unlock the kind of the secrets of the universe. And he's like, you really want to know ultimate truth? You want to know Logos? It's a person. It's flesh and blood. It's someone who's always existed, who's eternal, but also took on flesh and walked among you. And John is trying to just appeal to kind of their way of thinking. So his whole point really is this. Um, the idea of Christmas is that God has always existed and yet at one point in time entered into his own creation and clothed himself with flesh. The, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. We have to understand that when Jesus was given his name, you shall call his name Jesus, for, they sh for he shall save his people from their sins. We're also told to call him Emmanuel, as, as Diego mentioned, that's based out of Isaiah 7. In Matthew 1, the angel appears to Joseph and says this, Behold, the virgin shall be a child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. It's amazing, this angel's like, let me remind you what Isaiah said. Isaiah said that there would be a God who is with us. This baby is that God who is with us. Not just this idea that, hey, God is with you. We can say that all the time. God's with you. My son has a verse over his bed, be strong and courageous for the Lord your God 
is with you. But there's a difference to know that God is with you, but he's actually with you. He's Emmanuel. He walked among us. He's with us. He dwells in your hearts through faith, Ephesians 3 says. He's truly with you. He's Emmanuel. Now, here's why this is so profound. If you struggle with the idea, and I, you're welcome. If you struggle with the idea like you really believe Jesus is God, people still believe that in the 21st century. I understand that's a very difficult concept to believe. Understand this. If you think it's difficult for us to believe that Jesus is God, a man, God walked among us, God came to us, how much more difficult would it be for a first century Jew to end up believing that God walked among them? The idea was there's no way, according to the Jewish kind of mind, that God would ever enter earth. He might send a Messiah who would save us. He might send someone, but he's not going to be God among us. And that concept is, is out, like, there's no way that would happen. And yet, here's the main, the main idea. Obviously, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, all of these Jewish people started believing, oh my gosh, God walked among us. Jesus is God. I worded it terribly here, but if you think it's hard for us in the 21st century to believe that God came down, keep in mind that thousands of first century Jews believed that Jesus was God, and it was harder for them to believe that than it is for us, and yet they did. It's so much harder for them to believe that. You think it's hard for us today, but something convinced them, something changed their mind to go, this man truly was God. And John's writing to say, let me just, before I tell you the story of Jesus, John starts off in chapter one, he's like, let me just lay it down and be really clear. Jesus has always existed. He's always been with God and he is God and he walked among us. And this would be like, hey, we're Jewish here. We don't believe that sort of thing. We don't believe in the Trinity. We don't believe in that God would ever come to us and walk among us. And yet, all these Jews started converting to believe that God really did walk among us. Why? Because they must have seen something. They must have experienced something. Jesus must have convinced them with their life, with his life, his death, and his resurrection. Something radically changed, and I, I love this about that. Je and, and when people struggle and say, Jesus, did he ever claim to be God? There's so many verses we can point to, but Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. He said in John 8, 58, um, before Abraham was, I am. When John, uh, where Thomas sees Jesus resurrected, Thomas sees Jesus and goes, my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't go, Thomas, don't call me God. There's only one. John's trying to really reveal to us in the very beginning, Jesus is God and this God walked among us. And I know I keep saying that, but I, I really don't know if we get this. What world religion or what worldview says, actually God did come to earth. He walked among his own. And this God willingly gave up his life. And then the question is, how does God die? If he's God, doesn't God always live? How does God die? And we'll get to the idea of became flesh in a second. But this idea that God walked among his own. This is a profound truth that we proclaim, but we must, we must really surrender over to that reality. Here's what I want to say. Um, there, I think there's a phenomenal argument with the greater to the lesser. Um, I know that some people struggle here and go, I don't know if I believe God created everything. I don't know if I believe that. I think you do have a more difficult reason to explain the universe than we do. I don't believe matter is eternal or has always existed. I do believe that we say, no, there has to be something outside of all of this to create or spark this or get this going. The idea is God is the infinite being who's always existed, who's outside of time, space, and matter. He's the only one who could create this. And not only did he create it, but then he entered into it. And I think if you struggle with the incarnation, if you struggle with the idea that God became a man, like, zoom out. If God can create everything, and I, which I obviously believe he did, and if you don't, I think you have a harder, how do you explain everything? Just somehow gas struck lightning or lightning struck gas, and here we are. I think of a more difficult thing to answer. But the idea is, I do believe God created everything. And if God is the creator of everything, it's so much easier for me to go, yeah, I can, I can take on the mindset that he entered his own creation. 
He's in charge of it. He creates the laws of physics, everything. He did it all. So this idea of the greater to the lesser. God created everything. He enters his creation. I love what J.I. Packer says. He says, it is from misbelief or at least inadequate belief about the incarnation that difficulties at other points in the gospel story usually spring. But once the incarnation is grasped as reality, these other difficulties dissolve. If you struggle with certain ideas like, did Jesus really walk in water? Did Jesus do that? If you understand that God entered creation, you go, oh, okay. There's other things, that's easy. If you can understand that God created everything, you go, okay, that's easy. God's the author of all things. My, my focus today is this. The word has always existed. The word is not an idea or concept. The word is a person. The word is a person who's always existed, and then he took on flesh and walked among us. And we serve a God who's always existed. And the only way you and I can respond to this is this. If Jesus is God, like he claimed to be, the only way we can respond is with intensity. Meaning, if Jesus is God, like he claimed he is, you can't be like, nah, whatever. You can't be neutral about it. You either have to be furious that a man would actually believe that, think that people would follow that, or you have to be like, I'm all in. But this idea of Jesus being some neutral, good person, you cannot have that mindset. The idea is, if Jesus is God, you must have an extreme response. So the word, the word became flesh. We have to believe, like, yo, Jesus, you came down. The only response is either, this is crazy and this is nonsense, or maybe Jesus is who he claimed to be, and I'm all in. And I would just submit to you, don't be neutral about the person of Jesus. This question of who do you say that he is? Don't be neutral. He's a good man, good teacher. No, you cannot accept that. He's like, before Abraham was, I am. I've always existed. John, his best friend, is like, you gotta understand, he's always been with God. And he was God. And he walked among us. So the idea of, again, the first part, number one, is just the word. God, deity. Jesus is God. And the next phrase, this is so important, became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, look at verse 14. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's what this means. Um, this means God became extremely vulnerable. This is a very unique idea, I think, just to Christianity in general. But think about God. God's like, I'm going to enter my creation, and my creation is not going to receive me, reject me, crucify me, kill me. I know the outcome, and I'm still willingly putting myself into, their, in, into flesh and blood, knowing that my life will be taken. I love that God became vulnerable. I love that you think about the Old Testament. There's so much fear and trembling around the mountain of God, the pillar of fire, like all the different descriptions that God appeared as. There's so much fear and trembling. And then here's this little baby. Here's this vulnerable little baby. And God is here. And God has arrived. Um, There's this classic case, I think it was in the 70s that took place. Maybe you heard this name, maybe not. Uh, This woman named Kitty Genovese. Um, She was murdered in New York City in an alley. And this has actually become like a case study for something they've called the bystander effect. Maybe you've heard of this. But the idea was, um, here's this woman in this back alley. This man tries to mug her. And, and then as it kind of got violent between him and her, he stabs her. And she's crying in the alley, help, help. He's stabbing me. Help, help. This man's murdering me. He's killing me. Like, he's, I'm dying. She's screaming. And it was observed by the police later that there was over 37 people that heard her yelling, help, help. He's stabbing me. Help. I'm dying. Help. And the man got so scared by her screaming and yelling, he actually left in the middle of this crime, but realized no one came down and thought, well, I don't want her to you know, recognize me. So he came back, murdered her, and then left. Sorry for the graphic story on Christmas. Sorry. But the, the story goes, because so many people heard this, the police go, wait, did you hear that this happened? Like, why didn't you do anything? There's a couple of different reasons. Some were like, well, I thought someone else called you guys. I thought someone else did something. Another was like, oh, I was too afraid. If I go and help, he's going to murder me. Like, if, if I go down to her, I will become one of those victims. And so they, they you know, classify this as the bystander effect, and it's the idea that 
um, an immense pain and struggle, it's not guaranteed that someone's going to do something because of the risk of making themselves vulnerable and actually suffering the same consequence. Here's the idea with Christmas. God's like, I hear the cries of humanity saying, help, help. And I'm going to come down. I'm going to do something. I'm not going to ignore it. And God, knowing the outcome would be death, knowing the outcome, I'm still going to come down and give my life. God does not fall into that category of the bystander. He's like, no, I'm going to come down. I am so grateful for that idea of just not God just going, man, I, guys, I gave you some laws and commands. That should have been enough. <laughs> it's like, no, it wasn't enough. He knew that. He's like, let me come down and rescue you myself. Let me come down and take your place where my life is taken from me, where my life is given for you. I love what one author said. He says, God took the highest of the high and puts him in the lowest of the low. And if you want to see him, you have to humble yourself. You know, how God came matters. So think about that quote. I'm so glad that when Jesus came, he came born in a manger, born amongst a young couple that's essentially refugees, paying taxes. There's a decree that goes out to kill anyone under a certain age. The parents have to flee to Egypt. So you have this refugee poor family that people are out, out to kill them and their child. And I love that Jesus came in that way, not being born in a palace. Not being born in this place where he's unapproachable. Like Jesus, well, I am God, so obviously if I'm gonna come, like I need to be, you know, treated well. Like I'm so thankful that Jesus was born in this humble way where it's like, oh wait a second. He's born to a poor refugee family. And he's like, yeah, anyone can approach me. The idea is, I'm so thankful Jesus, the idea of the word became flesh. The idea is the flesh is incredibly vulnerable to us. And Jesus is like, I'm willing, I'm willing to put myself in that vulnerable state, in a place where you can reach me. So the idea is this. Um, I love that in order to come to Jesus, you must humble yourself. If you want to come to Jesus, Jesus is not in some palace. You're like, all right, I'm dressing myself up and look good. And like, I'm, I'm being someone with this notoriety and honor amongst common Jesus is this person that's wandering around and goes, um, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. The idea is if you want to come to Jesus, there is a humbling process that happens. Like really think about this today in 2023. If Jesus was born here, like in somewhere in South Florida and lived this lifestyle, you know, I, I can't be like, oh, I would fully be all in on the person of Jesus. I would have some questions. The thing that's like, scary to me is like, I don't know if I'd be humble enough to be like, yeah, this person, that's the Messiah we've always dreamed of. Like really, if you think about Jesus being born in this context, in this way here in our, our area, would you be like, guys, this is it. This is it. I mean, obviously it's clear. You'd be like, there's no way this homeless person who's like raggedy, has nowhere to live. There's no way he's, there's no way he's the Messiah. But the idea of his coming was this idea of you must humble yourself. God humbled himself. And if you want to receive what he has, you, you also have to humble yourself. The story of Christmas is that God took on flesh. How incredibly humbling is that? And if you want Jesus, you too have to humble yourself. There's something about Christmas that cannot like fill you with pride and ego. Basically, the idea of Christmas is you guys were so wretched and so lost and so wicked. I had to leave heaven and come to you and die for you. And that's for me as well. And that's humbling. That's like, so I'm not as great as I think I am? No, you're a filthy sinner and I have to take on your filthy sin and die in your place. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. Okay, but just the idea. I, I, it's like, man, this is such a humbling thing. The story is so humbling. The story says God humbled himself and you must humble yourself. I get why that's a turnoff to people. Like, I, don't, I don't want my God to be some crucified homeless guy. I get why some people are like, that's a turnoff to me. But the idea is he's approachable. He's vulnerable. He put himself in the lowest of low so you and I could one day be in the highest of high. God who is rich became poor so you and I through his poverty might become rich. That's, that's the story of Christmas.
God was rich, he, he became poor. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. So that you through his poverty might become rich. This is grace. But you have to humble yourself. That's the only appropriate response. I love, uh, I've, I might have quoted this before, but her name is Dorothy Sayers. She wrote an amazing book on hospitality. Here's what she says. This is a longer quote, but bear with me. This is good. This is fire. She says, for whatever reason, God, uh, for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Listen to this. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. Amen. I'm so thankful that God's like, I'm going to come and under... So you feel lonely? I get it. You're tired? I get it. You feel like God's not answering your prayers? I get it. God's like, I can relate to you now in a way that, may, that no one else would ever have dreamt of this. God's like, I get it. I, deity, clothe himself in humanity and suffer the same things you and I suffer. The story of Christmas, we cannot minimize the humanity of Jesus in the story of Christmas. That that cute little baby with his little tiny hands, it's like when I hold my son and see his little chubby hands, I love it. I love his little face. But if this cute little infinite, infant would one day just have his hands pierced through. That the whole idea of like his mission was to die. You know, you think about any sort of spiritual guru, think about this, any spiritual guru ever, death was a great interrupter for them. They had all these teachings and things they want to do and accomplish. Death was like this awful interruption of what they want to do. But for Jesus, death was not an interruption. Death was the mission. He's like, I've come as this cute little baby that we sing about. I came so that I could ultimately die. Like, it's just funny. I, obviously, when you think about the Christmas story and the manger scene, and we're like, oh my gosh, there's probably a little mice singing to a holy night. Like, we have like, these funny ideas, I think, around Christmas when we just realize, like, yo, I've seen three births. It's gnarly, okay? Um, you think the idea of just, like, birth and, like, is there a doctor? Oh, gosh, we're just in a stable with these animals. And, okay, oh, now we're on the run for our life because some guy's trying to kill us. And you think about everything around that, and that's just his welcome to earth. God, welcome to your creation that you loved and gave everything for and immediately wanted to murder you as an infant up to the point of your manhood and you die innocently. And the story of Christmas is violent. That's the point. The story of Christmas is violent. Why? Because we were violent. Because the story of Christmas is filled with sin. Why? Because we are filled with sin. And the idea is Jesus is like, I'm going to come and take your place, take on your sin, take on the wrath of man, take on the wrath of God so that you won't have to. I'm going to come and take and absorb the sin of the world so you don't have to. So that when you can stand before God, my Father, when you can stand before him, you can be declared righteous and innocent because of what I've done for you. The story of Christmas is like this beautiful yet complex, and you're like, what is going on here? And I'm so thankful we can sing that and go, yes, he clothed himself. Deity veiled himself, clothed himself in humanity, in flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And why does that matter? Why does it matter that he's both God and he's both man? Jesus is not, by the way, half man, half God. He's 100% God, 100% man. This is a really important belief that we have in our faith. We call this the hypostatic union. Just this idea that God is full, Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's not half or a little bit more, a little bit less of one or the other. He's fully God, fully man. Always existed. Creation was done through him and by him and for him, and yet creation killed him. 
And why does this matter? Because on one hand, Jesus had to be completely sinless. He had to be sinless so he could pay for our debts, but he also had to die, and in order to die, he had to be man. So for God to die, God has to become man. And both matter in the person of Jesus. And this idea of, of John saying, don't you get it? The word, the word that has always existed became flesh and dwelt among us, and yet we, mur- we murdered him? Both matter and both are necessary. Bruce Ware, uh, I believe is Bruce Ware, or John Stott said, the possibility of substitution rests on the identity of the substitute. So for there to be a substitution on our behalf, like who is this person's identity? It matters. And it matters that he's both fully God and fully man. Tim Keller says, Jesus is fully God, fully able to satisfy the, the divine wrath due sin. And he is fully man, fully able to stand in the place where you and I deserve to be. And this is why he came. Fully God, fully man. He's the only one who can fulfill both needs. We need to be sinless, so we have a sinless God. We need sin to be paid for, and he died in his flesh and his humanity. Both matter. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Listen, do not minimize Jesus' humanity. The whole idea of the book of Hebrews is basically saying, don't you realize you have this amazing advocate, this amazing priest, this amazing person who understands what it's like to be tempted and to suffer, and he can relate to you more than any other worldview or idea about God because your God walked among you. So you're sad, you're tired, you're lonely, you're, you're frustrated. Jesus has walked through and experienced that. I'm so thankful we have a God who relates. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And just lastly, he says, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Um, You guys probably know this. I didn't point it out yet. But I love the phrase, the word became flesh and dwelt, dwelt among us. You might know that word dwelt is. The word dwelt, it just means tented or tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. So stay with me. He's connecting tabernacle and glory. He tabernacled, and we saw the glory. Obviously, if you're a Jewish person, you understand the framework that he's given you. When uh, God gave the law, and he gave him the framework for the the temple um, that, that was once a tabernacle, like a tent, a mobile temple, and then it became like Solomon's temple, um, you have the idea that God's dwelling place was in this temple where uh, you have the holy place, the holy of holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant, you have, you know, the table of showbread, you have all these different things that made up the tabernacle. And the idea was, oh, I could meet with God at the tabernacle. God's glory was above the mercy seat in the holy of holies. And so the idea was the tabernacle was always associated with glory. If you want to, if you want to experience or encounter God, you have to go to the tabernacle where the glory of God rest. Now, you can't go to the Holy of Holies, but you can get as close as you could to it by being in the outer courts. And the idea was, man, here is God. God is here, and we're going to go to him. And the tabernacle was something you went to. Then the temple, God is here, we're going to go to him. And here's what John says. John says, it's no longer God is here, and you go to him. The tabernacle came to us. The tabernacle walked among us, and we beheld his glory. So what I love about John 1.14 He's saying, for so long, we had to go to God. For so long, we had to go and find him, and he was in a certain place, and we could maybe like experience or get a taste of his glory in that way. But this glory walked among us. This glory was with us, and we saw him. We saw the glory, full of grace and truth. And the idea of Christmas is this. When it says, we have seen his glory, he's saying the end, there's the end of religion as you and I know it. Because the end of religion is that. The religion is, I must go to God. I want to get a taste of the mercy and forgiveness and kindness and glory of God. And I got to find him and search him. But Christmas says, you can't find him. You can't search him. He came down to us. He walked among us. 
And I'm so thankful for John saying he tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. So the tabernacle, the, the place of God's glory was no longer built with hands like a tent, like a temple. The tabernacle was no longer built with human hands, but God walked among us. And we saw the physical glory of God in the person of Jesus. He was full of glory. The, t- the temple was a- a- around us at all times. It came to us. The whole idea is this. Um, if you think that Christianity is this idea of like, go find God, go seek out God. No. The story of Christmas is God came to us. God sought us. God walked among us. God's like, I want you to see him walk among you and live with you. And you're going to see my glory full of grace and truth. We serve a God who came to us. I'm so thankful for the story of Christmas and what it offers. Because I, I, I could never do it. Dick Lucas, this old preacher back in the day, used to talk about this. He goes, this must have been so strange. I, I might have mentioned this before, but I love this thought. He's like, could you imagine to the first century pagan what this idea of Christianity was? It must have been so weird. Like, hey, Christians, where do you worship? Where's your temple? We don't have a temple. Why not? Well, Jesus is our temple and he walked among us. Okay. Well, what sacrifices do you make? No, we don't, we, we don't make any sacrifices either. I know everyone else does, but we don't. Why? Well, Jesus was a sacrifice as well. He's your temple and your sacrifice? Yeah. All right, well, do you have priests that like make atonement for you? No, no, Jesus is the priest as well. Huh? Yeah, he's the one who made atonement for our sins. Like everything that's associated with religion back in their day, you need a place, right? You need a priest, right? You need a sacrifice, right? We're like, no, 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 we're good, we're good. All that's fulfilled in Jesus. Huh? The idea of the glory, the glory was no longer something we had to seek or go, gosh, I hope I, hope I can offer something and be good enough for God. God's like, no, no, I became the offering for you. I became the temple for you. I walked among you. I, everything you need or you think you need, I have fulfilled on your behalf. And I, we don't have a, a sacrifice. Jesus fulfilled all of that. We beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. When Moses is like, God, show me your glory, Exodus 33. Moses is like, God, I want to see your glory. God's like, Moses, you can't handle that. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. I'm going to cover, I'm going to cover you, kind of you with my hand. And you're going to kind of see my afterglory. You're going to kind of see like the, the after part. I'm going to walk by like an asteroid that goes by. You're going to see that little comet, the little tail. That's what you get to see. Moses is like, I just want to see your glory. And then he saw like a little glimpse of it. And he just, his face was so bright, he had to cover his face. But what I love about that story, Moses begging for the glory of God, like longing for the glory of God. John's like, you know what Moses wanted? We had. We had what he wanted. You see, what we have in Christ is far better than what Moses had, than what Abraham had, than what Noah. They, we have what they were looking forward to. We actually get to behold the glory. You see, part of just the Christian whole experience in faith is saying, hey, seek the face of Jesus. You're like, what does that mean? It means understand the teachings of Jesus, the confessions of Jesus, surrender yourself over to the reality of who Jesus is. You're saying, I'm not going to live for what I want or what I think, but I'm going to behold the glory of God through the person of Jesus. That Meaning that God actually doesn't just tell us what to do, but he sent us a person. God doesn't just say, here's the right things to believe. Here's the logos. He actually is the logos. And so, it's, again, it's less of a concept of like, make sure you believe these things. Yes, Christianity is a belief system. Yes, there's certain beliefs to have. However, you can summarize it better by saying it's more about a person than it is a set of beliefs. Do you know the person of Jesus? Have you received the free gift of salvation found in Emmanuel, God with us? And Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. Do you know him? It's very possible to always be around this but still not know him. And that is the danger of the Christmas thing is I know the story but I don't know him. 
And that is a danger, I think, with all Christians ever throughout all of history is, I'm around this, I know this, I can check the right boxes, but do you know Jesus? Do you know, have you received the free gift of salvation found in Jesus? Have you confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead? Have you said, I surrender to the reality of the person of Jesus? He is the word who was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The Father sent his Son. He was full of grace and truth. Do you know Jesus this way? It's not enough to just know and believe he's God and believe he's a man, but have you beheld his glory? So John's like, we saw it. We've seen his glory. And we'll get to it next week, but First John's all about, and you too can experience this glory we have seen and touched and handled. John's whole invitation is, this is not just for us and we're the lucky ones. We got to see him, no, but this too is available to you. As Jesus said, blessed are those who believe and yet never seen. You can see Jesus without physically seeing Jesus by embracing the person and the confession of who Jesus is. Really, part of this season is just say, yes, Lord, I believe you are deity clothed in humanity. You came to die and take my place and to rise again so I could have eternal life with you. My hope is that this Christmas you don't just fly by and miss the word became flesh who dwelt among us, that you'd also see his glory. Don't miss that. Don't miss that moment. Don't miss that experience. I love what Isaac Watts said in his song. He says, let every heart prepare him room, right? That's the point. All right, we got to have room. I'm going to prepare room for you. I believe you are who you say you are. Um, what I want to do is this, and I think this is the best way to transition. Listen, Jesus is the word who has made flesh. Jesus says, if you want to have relationship with me, what does he say in John 6? You must eat my body and drink my blood. Many people heard that and walked away. I understand what that sounds like. But that's the whole idea of communion, and that's why we're taking communion. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We take communion to say, wow, Lord, thank you so much that you clothed yourself in flesh and blood. You shed your blood so I could have the forgiveness of sins. You gave your body, your body's broken and beaten because I could be made whole in you, Jesus. So Jesus took my sin, my payment, my debt, and he paid it all. And we, we take this as just a reminder to say, Jesus, thank you so much that your body was broken for me and your blood was shed for my forgiveness. Um, church, I just want to point this out. Listen, we are going to take communion right now. And we do have this little, in the top reminded of, Jesus, your body was broken so I could be made whole. Your body was a sacrifice to satisfy the righteous wrath of God. Your blood was shed so my sins could be forgiven. And I take this to celebrate and remember, Jesus, it is finished. The purpose of your arrival, the purpose of your birth was one day so I could partake of you and what you've done for me. And so I just want to say this. Um, if you do not yet know Jesus, you can call on Jesus right now, believe in your heart right now, and the Bible says, and you will be saved. And you can take, eat, and drink freely. I love that. But if you do not believe in Jesus, do not feel the need to take this. Do not feel the need to eat and drink. There's no need whatsoever. But I would encourage you today to call on Jesus and know Jesus as the Word made flesh, to behold His glory. And sometimes the best way you and I can do that is just simply slowing down and saying, thank you, Jesus, that you are who you said you are, that you took my place, you, you died, you rose again, and I just want to remember your body that was broken, and I want to remember your blood that was shed for my forgiveness. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to worship, and I'm going to invite you just to pray over this and say, Lord, thank you for what you've done. The whole idea of communion just means giving thanks. The Eucharist means to give thanks. We give thanks. God, thank you that your body was broken. Thank you that your blood was shed. And I want want to remember and celebrate and honor who you are and what you've done. God, you came as that baby, that cute baby in the manger, so ultimately I could partake of you and what you've done. And thank you that by your stripes we're healed, that you, you bore our sorrows, our grief, our sin, our shame. Thank you, God. 
So we're just going to slow down. I want to invite you right now. I'm going to pray, but I'm going to step aside during worship, pray over this, thank the Lord for this. When you are ready, eat, drink, join in worship, join in the song. We're just going gonna to create a space where you can worship Jesus and remember his death and his resurrection. Can we do that? Can we pray right now? Father, we just want to thank you because this story is connected. Um, the, the birth of your son, Jesus, was ultimately so you and I and we could have reconciliation with you, God, um, so that we could walk together. Lord, I just ask for everyone in this place, in this room, Jesus, that you would remind them of who you are, that this would not just be, again, some story we've heard before, but I, I ask God that even in this time of worship now, this time of taking communion now, Lord, that um, as John said, we've seen your glory full of grace and truth. And Lord, I just ask that right now we just see your glory in that way. Jesus, you are so good. You're so gracious. God, we are so, we are so worthy of, of judgment, and yet you took our place of judgment. God, you've forgiven us. We're supposed to thank you. Thank you for your son being truth, for being the logos, for being ultimate reality. Lord, we just need you. We ask that we would not um, live for other, other realities, other things that Jesus, you'd be the ultimate reality, the ultimate meaning and reason of why we're here. So we just want to thank you, Jesus, and praise you in your precious